Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 6 through 16, and chapter 19, verses 18 to 24. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Chapter 19, verse 18. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naioth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is why people say, Is Saul also among the prophets? This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us over the past month, We've been looking at the life of David, single longest piece of narrative of a single human life in ancient literature. And last week, we heard the famous story of David and Goliath. Ooh, sorry. David and Goliath. David kills Goliath in mortal combat. And it's one of the most famous hero stories of all time, really. And in the aftermath, we see King Saul and Prince Jonathan. The two of them, this is what we see in chapter 18 and 19. And you see two different ways that people respond to David's victory. First, you see Jonathan. Jonathan's the crown prince. He's the heir to the throne, and he sees on David the, the spirit of God resting. And he sees in David this tremendous courage, and he sees tremendous faith beyond anything that Jonathan himself is capable of. And he realized that God had anointed David to become the next king, which means that he's not going to be the next king. And Jonathan and Saul, they both begin to recognize that. But he realizes this, and what does he do? He, he responds so differently. They both respond so differently 
to David's victory, Jonathan's response was remarkable. He surrenders to David. But today we're going to see a much more painful response. Saul, upon seeing David's heroism, he begins this downward acceleration, this downward spiral path in his spiritual, spiritually. And our reading today, it's going to provide a, a, I'm just going to really provide a high-level understanding of this text, uh, some basic lessons, you know, as we kind of go along here. Um, what's, what's going on? God's word comes to Saul, and he basically says, neither you nor any member of your family is going to sit on the throne. Not anymore. Jonathan saw it. He accepted it. In fact, he surrenders to it. He submits it. It shaped his life, and in turn, it shapes his friendship with David. They become the best of friends, lifelong friends, covenantal relationship. He loved David. He takes off his royal robe. He takes off his sword. He submits it to David, but Saul, the exact opposite. Saul, the actual king, the exact opposite. He decides to hate God's will. He decides to resent God's will. And as a result, a spiritual downward spiral begins. And so we're going to see three things here. Three things in this text. There's a lot, but we're going to narrow it down to three things. First, we're going to see, and it's all around Saul's jealousy. First, the power of jealousy. Second, the process of this downward acceleration into self-destruction in a sense. And third, putting an end. We're going to see the power of jealousy, the process of jealousy, and lastly, I couldn't think of a third P word to make it all kind of work out. Putting an end, putting an end to jealousy, okay? Three Ps. First, the power of jealousy. Saul, he's very angry. This whole thing, it said it galled him, it got him. Verses 6 to 9. What was the issue? They accredited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? That's what Saul says. David is all the while living in Saul's palace, in his court. And it says here that Saul kept a jealous eye then from that time on. Literally, the text says that from that time on, Saul looked at David through jealousy. As if he put these jealousy contacts on and everything that he sees with respect to David was was through those lens all the time. That's how he sees David. Now, what's so bad about jealousy? What's so powerful and bad about jealousy? The Bible often says that envy and jealousy, it's really the beginning, it marks the beginning of the end of a human life. So often self-destruction, our corrosion in life, it begins with jealousy. James chapter 3. James chapter 3 and, uh, it's an epistle at the, in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. He, the, the writer contrasts envy. He puts envy against heavenly wisdom. He says, seek the wisdom, but if you envy, the truth is not in you. That's what he says. In other words, envy destroys your ability to garner wisdom, to grow in wisdom. It changes that. Envy destroys your clarity, your perspective. It makes you look at things, and you don't see reality, not as they are. So it distorts your mind, and as a result, James writes, it's the opposite of wisdom. It doesn't lead you towards wisdom. It's actually the opposite. It leads you towards deception, self-deception, corrosion of your soul. That's what it says. It makes you incredibly self-absorbed. And as a result, you turn inward. And when you start turning inward, it starts to kill your love for other people. So jealousy, envy is the beginning of all that. Now, what is it? And you see it right here in in this text. Verse 8, they have credited David with tens of thousands, 
but me, they have only credited thousands. And there it is. David, representing the country, representing God's people, rescues their people, rescues them really from a lifetime, a generation of slavery. And Saul, but Saul, he's ungrateful. He says, that's what he sees. Everyone's dancing. Everyone's celebrating. He says, but me, what about me? This is what envy is. You see, love is empathic by nature. That's what love is. So if you're loving somebody, what are you doing? When they're happy, you're happy. And when they're sad, you're sad. That's what love does. Even if you don't have a lot to do with it, the actual circumstance, when, you're, when somebody you love is rejoicing, you rejoice. And when they're mourning, you mourn. That's what love is. What envy does is, envy kind of turns that around. You know, one of my favorite preachers, Tim, Tim Keller, he says, envy does this, on the other hand. When, when you should be, when you, love does this. Love, you rejoice with people you rejoice. Mourn with people you mourn, who mourn. Envy rejoices when people mourn. And it mourns, it weeps when people rejoice. That's what envy does. It turns in on you. And as a result, because it does that, it destroys your empathic nature. It destroys your capability to love other people. And as a result, it destroys clarity. Because it's destroying clarity. It's destroying wisdom. Envy is that thing you says, you know, because of this person's success, because of their looks, because of anything, something, it makes me hate them. It makes me hate them. I can't stand that because I deserve that thing. I'm the one that should have been successful. I'm the one that should have had that thing. And it happens a number of ways. I'm going to give you a few examples. And I, w- I watch a lot of movies, so I'll try to show you, I'll try to connect them with a few movies to get us to understand what, what we're talking about here. One way that envy kind of plays out in our lives is this. Somebody has something that you don't have. That's very base, very simple. Somebody has something that you don't have. Remember the Count of Monte Cristo, the movie? Not the book, but the movie. Count Mondego, he betrays his good friend, his best friend, supposedly, Edmond Dantes. Why? Because Dantes got the promotion. Dantes got the ship, the captain. Right? He became a captain. Dantes got the honor. Dantes has the fiancé. And so he is happy. And so finally, when he betrays him, Edmond Dantes wants an explanation. He says, why do you do this? And he says, because you're the son of a clerk, and I'm not supposed to want to be you. That's what he says. Another way that envy kind of plays out is you become resentful of somebody because they have what you already have. You actually have it, but they have it too. And you don't feel like they deserve it because you worked so much harder. You feel cheated. Or kind of similar to that, you feel cheated because they have what you have, but they have it better than you. So they have a more loving spouse. They have brighter children. They have healthier children. They have a better salary. There's this old movie, one of my favorite movies, um, called Amadeus. came out in the 80s. Many Oscar awards, including Best Picture. And it pits two people. You have Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, this prodigy. But the movie centers around the jealousy of Salieri, another composer during his time. And Salieri is in an insane asylum, and he, it, he confesses, supposedly, of having killed Mozart. And there's this priest there who comes because, basically, he's at, he's at the end of his rope, and the priest wants to help him absolve himself of his sins. 
And, you know, Salieri, he is a composer. He's notable. He's wrote many pieces. He's honored by the king. He's a religious man. And all he ever wanted to do was compose. Compose, be a great composer. But who stood in the way? Mozart. Mozart always upended Salieri. And uh, basically, uh, the, you know, the priest Vogler comes up to him. And he, he's trying to understand Salieri's pain. And Salieri says, here, let me, let me give you an example. And Salieri plays this piece, and he says, do you recognize this piece? And, and the, uh, the, the priest says, no, I, I do not. And he says, okay, ah, then surely you must recognize this one. And he kind of plays this other piece. And Father Vogler, he says, no, I, I don't quite, un- never heard that piece either. And he says, can you remember no melody of mine? I was the most famous, famous composer in all of Europe. I wrote 40 operas by myself. And he starts playing all these pieces, and, the, and Father Vogler does not, he's unfamiliar with all of them. And Salieri says, okay, how about this one? How about this one? And he starts to play. You know what he plays? He goes, dun, 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 dun. And so Father Vogler, he starts to recite it, hum it with him. And he says, yes, yes, I, I remember that one. That's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that piece. And Salieri kind of turns to him coldly, and he says, I didn't. That was Mozart. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And and as he kind of shares his story, this growing jealousy, he prays to God, and this is what he says. He says, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and give me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. And because you are unjust and unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. That's Salieri. At least that's Salieri in the movie. At the end, what is this text saying? At the end, envy is something in the heart when you see other people who are successful, other people who have joy. They have all these things. It starts to turn you inward, and it kills you. It corrodes you little by little because everyone's situation that's good becomes about you. You want to get married? You want to be married. So when you go to that wedding, you just don't see it. You can't see how those two people could be happy together. They're never going to make it. That's what you say in your heart. Why? It's because you are going to be married. So you can't rejoice with people who are rejoicing. You can't celebrate with them. You want children? You're desperate for children? I've met so many people who say, my attempts at having children have failed. And as a result, they can't stand to look at children. They can't stand to look at parents being there for their children. They, can't, they just can't stand it. That's what they say. You want to be a partner in a firm? But then your friend, your colleague makes partner. You just can't be happy for them. You know why? It's because you feel that's what I wanted, and I worked harder for that. I deserve it at the least as much as that person, maybe more. In fact, that person doesn't deserve it at all. Why am I down here? And that person's all the way up there. You want to be in a relationship. And suddenly, and here's how another, another way it plays out. Your, your best friend, their boyfriend breaks up with them. And they call you, and and they're so sad. And and they're calling you for comfort, and there's that part of you. On one hand, you're trying to console them, but there's that part of you that's glad because you hated being the third wheel. 
Love rejoices with people who rejoice. But envy rejoices with people who weep. You see that? It weeps when other people are rejoicing. Because it makes you say, I deserve that. I deserve better. And at the core of that, you know what's at the core of that? It's self-pity. Because when you look at life, and you look at other people in life, and you say, you know, I deserve to have that because I worked hard. I never got the opportunities. My parents never gave me that chance, so they were unfair. With this job, my boss is unfair. What are you doing? What's driving all that? It's self-pity. Envy is driven by self-pity. That's at the core. Self-pity makes it impossible for you to celebrate. And also, it makes it impossible for you to focus on their situation when you are with them because it's turned inward. It's turned you inward. It makes it about you. You can't look at somebody and say, wow, look at that person. That's great. Wow, look at her. That's great. You can't enjoy what they're enjoying. And so you make everything about you. You can't be happy that they're happy. Like Saul. Saul says they've credited David. Everyone's dancing around him. Everyone's celebrating around him. The women are pouring out because they're seeing that their husbands didn't have to go to fight and war. They're not going to become slaves. Their children are not going to become slaves. They're celebrating. There's dancing. There's music. But what happens? Saul says they have credited to David tens of thousands. But me. That's what he's looking at. But me. Only thousands. It means you're not only unhappy when, when you don't make partner, right? You're happy when anybody makes partner. You're not only unhappy when you don't have children. You're happy when anybody has children. You're not unhappy when you're not in a relationship. You're unhappy when anybody else around you gets into a relationship. And that's unwise. It's because it's become about you. It's unempathic. It's unloving. It makes you less human. You know why? Because we were designed as human beings to become empathic, to connect, to be related. So any, anything like envy, fostering the opposite of wisdom, the opposite of clarity, the, the opposite of the ability to love or to be empathic towards another person, that becomes dehumanizing. That makes you less human. Saul, he couldn't be, he couldn't be happy with David's success. And so, because it became about him. And so, it begins as self-pity, and it starts to spread. And he can't celebrate, and he can't enjoy, and pretty soon it starts to corrode him. And so, there's this subtle change that takes place in Saul through the text. But then you see the outward manifestation. It starts to degrade him, even outwardly, more explicitly. That's what envy is. You know, in the garden, it didn't start with Saul. He go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What did Satan do when he was tempting Adam? He said, the only reason why God doesn't want you to have this fruit is because you will become like him. Envy. Envy is what begins it all. And since envy had already ruined the universe, you can never, you must never underestimate what envy can do right now in our hearts. Saul, he didn't stop it. It started as a little spark, right? Verse 8, he could have addressed it, but he let it go. And as a result, it grew. What do you do? Jonathan Edwards, probably the, the greatest, one of the top maybe two greatest American philosophers, this is what he says with regards to envy. He says, you shouldn't just look at yourself and say, don't be envious. I'm not going to be envious anymore. He says, you, he says the gospel needs to eat away at envy. That's the only way you can put it away. 
you have to realize that in creation, that the very act of creation, the very act of creating humans was done so much not out of envy, so much not out of self-pity or insecurity. And he says, isn't it incredible that God would have made us needing other people besides himself? That shows us that God, in that sense, is not a jealous God. He's not jealous in that sense. He's not a possessive God. And that's the most incredible thing. Jesus Christ, he comes to earth, he lives this perfect life, and he dies this terrible death. But in John chapter 17, do you know what he prays before he heads off, before he gets arrested, before the cross? You know what he prays? Father, I want them to have all the things that they don't deserve. I want them to have all the things that I deserve. I want them to be with me where you are. In other words, Jesus, he didn't envy. He didn't envy us sharing the throne. He knows we don't deserve it, but he didn't envy us sharing the throne with him. In fact, he wanted that. He died for that. The complete opposite of envy. It's an incredible thing. At the root of envy, it's, I don't want them to have what they don't deserve. or I don't want them to have what I deserve. But that's going to ruin us. If you go that route, that's going to ruin us. That's what Saul did. He went from that thought. He probably tried to suppress it. Realistically, he probably tried to suppress it. He was a religious man. He probably knew it was bad. He tried to suppress it. But then it spread like wildfire. It took control over his life. He couldn't let David go. And so he wanted David ruined. He wanted David dead. If you understand the grace of God, when you see other people who get things that they don't deserve or get things that maybe you feel like you deserve, you have to see how much more gracious God is than yourself. And you have to celebrate that. God rejoices in the fact that we got what we didn't deserve. God rejoices in the fact that we got what only he what only Jesus himself deserved, then we can't hate people because they're getting what they don't deserve. We can't hate them for that. You can say, oh, but they're so ungrateful. You know what? They'll be judged for that. If they're ungrateful, they'll be judged for that someday. Or maybe God's going to use that to turn them back to God, and that's a wonderful thing. But it's not for us to be upset about it. The gospel says we are recipients of grace. And when we look at Jesus and we look at how he lived and how he died, it, gives, it shows us that Jesus did all that to give us that very thing, what we don't deserve. And Jesus on the cross, he was satisfied by that. It says he was glad to do all this, to go to that extent so that we would receive only what he deserved. So only grace then can take away an envious heart. That's the longest point. We have to set the foundation there. That's the power of envy of jealousy. Now, what's the process? This is how the downward spiral goes. We're just going to kind of walk through this fat passage here. Saul, he wanted to hold on to his kingdom more than anything else. That's what he wanted. And if you go through this passage, chapter 18, verses 10 to 11, two times he tries to kill David with a spear. He hurls a spear, but David, you know, he was impulsive. He tries to throw a spear. David eludes it. But as the passage goes by, he realizes that He can't just do that. That was in the confines of his own home. It was pretty much done in private. But he realizes David's gaining popularity, and it scared him. He's growing in popularity. And so what does he do? He goes on, verses 12 to 16, he tries to subtly, more privately, more secretly bring him down. And what he does is, um, 
he knows that if he tries to openly do it, he could, a revolution could happen. He could lose the throne. The very thing that he wants to keep, he could lose. So what does he do? Because the throne is the thing that he wanted most, he went after David, but he tries to do it in a subtle way. In chapter 18, first, he puts him in charge of the military. He says, you're going to be my general. And he sends them off to all these campaigns because what he's hoping for is because the general is going to be in the front line that maybe David will be killed in battle. And it's subtle. It's secret. It's, it's an inner conspiracy of the heart. But he sends them out on all these missions trying to get him killed. But what happens? David keeps winning. He keeps winning. And so that, it starts to eat away at him. It, starts, it becomes so corrosive to him. And, you know, his popularity continues to grow. So it's scaring him even more. Then what does he do? One of his daughters, Michael, falls in love with David. And he says, if I can get them to get married, I can use that. So what does he do? He says, well, David's very poor. That's the circumstance. He grew up in a very poor home. And back then, if you marry into royalty or if you marry into wealth, you actually have to pay a tremendous price, a bride's price for that. But David couldn't afford it. So what does Saul do? He says, here's what I want from you. I want you to prove your loyalty to me. I want you to prove your love uh, to your wife for me. I want you to prove your worth. And here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go to the Philistine camp, and I want you to bring back a hundred foreskins. Now, because the Philistines were uncircumcised, only the Jews were circumcised, Right? He says, I want you to bring back, I want you to kill a hundred Philistines and bring back as proof their foreskins. Right? Saul's crazy. He's trying, to get, he's trying to get David killed, but he wants David to bring back with him a barrel of foreskins, basically. And what does David do? He brings back 200. 200. And by chapter 19 now, Saul, he's, he's basically, he sees the writing on the wall. And he turns around and he says to his son, I want David dead. What's going on? His life is spiraling downward. He's just imploding on himself. And so he's, he's abusing his family. He abuses the people around him. He's using his, his, loyal, his most loyal palace people, his friends, his court, against David. He turns them all on David. He tries to coerce his son, who would not be coerced, but he coerces his daughters, and he's manipulating people around him, and little by little, either subtly or explicitly, he actually does throw another spear at David in chapter 19. David eludes it again, and he's just, he's just completely falling apart, and he's becoming suspicious, and he's becoming uh, conspiring, and, you know, he turns his, da- his daughters are now, uh, he puts them against him, he, throws, he puts them up against him, by the middle of chapter 19, he actually goes into his house. Verse 13, he throws that spear, right? He sends soldiers basically to kill him at one point, chapter 19, right in the middle. And, but David's wife puts a dummy inside the bed, right, and realizes that David had gotten away. And so all this is happening. And finally, he now sends his men out. Where is David? He's out with Samuel, basically uh, training uh, Samuel, has a, he's a prophet, and he's basically training other prophets. And in that training center that Samuel has put up, David has gone to hide and find refuge there, sanctuary there. Saul will go at no cost. He sends his men to go kill David there. And every single time he sends a wave of men, the men hear the word of God. 
they start to prophesy, right? They start to hear the word of God. They start to share the word of God. And David stays alive. So finally, wave after wave, Saul says, if you're going to do something, you've got to do it yourself. He goes down there, and then he hears the word of God. And he's convicted. And he starts to prophesy. And then he's torn. You see him tearing his robe. That's what's going on. To Saul, the most important thing in the world is his kingdom, his kingship. And that desire is so much greater than God that he's willing to go against God for it. In the beginning, it was wise enough not to harm David explicitly. But his hunger for power, his thirst for power, this, it gave him a certain amount of wisdom at first. He was subtle. But then it became more and more explicit and became more and more obsessed with ridding himself of David. First he tells Jonathan. Then he tells his attendants. Then he tells everybody, his entire court. Finally he goes after Rama. What is this say telling you? Slavery. That's what envy is. The more you go down the path of envy, you get enslaved. It's like an addiction. Eventually, it's at all costs. It starts inside. It starts with a hit. It starts with subtlety. But over time, like cocaine, like heroin, anything that you make more important than God in your life, it becomes an idol. And it shapes everything. You see life only through that. So if it's tending to your needs, then they're a friend. But if it's not tending to your needs, the problem is never you. It's everything else around you. That's what an addict is. And at one point, by the end, he doesn't even care anymore. He's so resigned. You know, I've met a lot of people over the course of time. Their life is blown up around them. And what they do is they come to me and they say, but I realize I've healed because that thing that I was so hooked on, I don't really care that much anymore. Everything's blown up. And I, you know what? I know that I'm healing because it doesn't bother me anymore, Donnie. That's what they say. What they don't realize is that the reality is that you should care. That's actually the true sign of healing. If you don't see the people that you've hurt, if you don't see the pain that you've endured, if you don't see all the things that have been damaged as a result of your addiction, and you don't care, and you're just looking at that one instance, life is blown up, and you realize, you know, my life is blown up around me, and it's okay. That's actually a sign that the hurt has gone deeper. And you're just addressing it superficially. That's what it is. You've become, here's how you know. If you've become less empathic, if you've become less connected, if you've become more resigned, if you've become more self-pitying, if you've become more suspicious of people, less trusting, you don't have a problem, you've lost your senses. You've lost wisdom. You've lost clarity. The envy is eating you alive and has now turned you into something else. That's what's happening. It's dehumanizing you. It's showing you actually more that you're at the end of your rope. The self-deceit is now taking greater toll on your life. And you're saying, see, I'm okay. I'm getting better. It's actually taking a toll on your life and self-deception has now taken hold and you've become resigned. Anything that you make Number one in your life, apart from God, it ends up destroying you. It ends up blowing you up inside, in a way. For instance, if you make your spouse more important than anything else, 
that emotional dependence is going to do what? It's going to actually drive your spouse away. If you make your children the most important thing in your life, you know what you're going to do? You're going to abuse them. You're going you're to try to live your life through them, and that means that they have to be perfect because they're a reflection of your heart for them, right? So you're going to kill their spirit. You're going to kill their joy. You're not going to let them make mistakes. And because of that pressure, you know what's going to happen? You're going to drive them away. If you need approval from other people, first of all, you're never going to be honest with them. You're never going to be honest because you have to please them in your heart. Or you're going to become very passive-aggressive with them so that even though you, just don't, you, know, you need to deal with them, you're never going to address them. You're never going to confront them. And any criticism you hear from them is going to just devastate you. It's going to just destroy you. The very heart of desiring acceptance is going to end up making you lose acceptance, lose your friends. That's what happens. Now, we all here want to be king. Look at Jonathan. Jonathan is in this text because he is juxtaposing his father. His father throws a spear. Jonathan gives up his sword. His father is covertly, secretly turning on David. Jonathan is making a pact with David. That's what's going on. Jonathan is demonstrating true kingliness, but the kingliness shows up how? Through surrender, through giving up, through humility. Anything, for Jonathan, God has become so important in his life, he's willing to give up his kingship so that God's will will advance. He's no longer supposed to be king. David has been chosen to be king. Well, then I'm going to give everything up. I'm going to give up my sword. I'm going to give up my robe. I'm going to make friends with David. I'm going to make sure he gets away from my father. Saul refused to do that. In fact, Saul chose to resent God's word. And so while David was becoming more noble, I'm sorry, Jonathan was becoming more noble, more loyal, more kingly, more heroic, Saul was beginning to become more of a slave. So as the lower one is becoming more kingly, the king was being brought down until he became a murderer. Now we do that all the time. So that we feel more kingly, we murder other people's reputations, we gossip. That's what gossip is. Stab people from behind. We're throwing spears in private. That's what we're doing. At the end of the story, Saul is a sorry case. He's an example of a fool. And what this text is showing us is that the same can happen to you. It can happen to me. Now, how do you put an end to it? How do you put an end to jealousy? Saul went to Ramah to try to kill David. And he went to this place where the prophets were. And, you know, here's this man. His heart is raging, and he's going against God. He's going against his will. And uh, he, he's basically trying to force his plan. He's trying to force his view of reality. And he says, I cannot let God do this. I can't let him do this to me, to my family. I can't let it do, him do this to my kingdom. Now, the prophets, their word comes down on Saul. He's convicted. That's what that means. And he starts to prophesy. He starts to respond. The Spirit of God comes down, and he's forcing Saul to see the reality. And it's getting him. That's what it says. He's prophesying. His men are prophesying around him. Every wave, his men are prophesying. Then he goes down, and he starts to prophesy. That's what it says. Now, what does he do? He strips himself, he says, at one point. You know what that means? Imagine Saul. 
right? He's going there because he wants to, he knows he wants to kill David. But then the word of God comes and it's convicting him. And so he's trembling and he's sweating and he's troubled and he's conflicted. He's like an addict. He's trembling. He's sweating. He's troubled. The text says, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naioth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all that day and night. This is God's way of saying, you cannot escape my will. My will will break you one way or the other. Either my word is going to convict you and humble you, And then you're going to follow my will, you're going to obey my will, or you're going to go against my will, and you're going to tremble, and you're going to sweat, and you're going to lose everything, and that's going to break you. One way or other, my will will not be broken. One way or another, if anything, it's going to break you. And so Saul is angry, and he's discontent, and he's trembling, and he's captive, he's held captive. And he's broken up. And he's conflicted. And anytime you see in the Old Testament a person tearing off his robe like that, it means he's conflicted. He's conflicted and he's resentful. You have to let the word speak into you. You have to let the word contradict you sometimes. You know what that means? You notice here at the end of this text, it's an irony. Because the people see Saul doing that and they say, isn't he among the prophets? He must be a very religious man. That's what they're saying. Here's this person who starts prophesying, and he's angry inside, and he's broken inside. He's tearing his robes, and he's fighting God. And the people look at him and say, wow, that's a religious person. He's praying. What does this passage tell us? It's possible for us. It's possible for us to serve God outwardly, to be a church, to be a part of community group, to to be aligned outwardly with the vision. But inside, you're conflicted. You're torn up. You're broken up. You're against God, actually. Your lifestyle, you don't, your choices, your lifestyle, you don't want to follow God. And then you wonder why you're so angry. And you wonder why you're so against things. You wonder why you're so critical of people, critical of our leaders. That's what we do. You're just using the church like Saul was using his palace for your own means. You haven't submitted. That's why you never look at someone's gifts. That's why you never look at someone's works. How do you deal? You want to know know how you know you're growing? Before, you may have been envious. How does, does the gospel address your anxieties? How does the gospel address, are you growing more in love? for other people? Are you becoming more soft to people? To people who are not like you? In fact, people who have spoken against you? Are you letting God's word, this is the biggest one, are you letting God's word go against you? That's a relationship. Your closest friends, there's not a single person here in this room who've had a good friend who hasn't gone against them, who hasn't contradicted them, who hasn't confronted them. You want to know a good friend? A good friend is somebody you know loves you. On your best days, you know that friend loves you. But on your worst days, the way they show their love is they confront you. That's how you know. Do you, let the, do you have a willingness 
to let the word of God contradict your lifestyle, contradict your choices in life. Now, on one hand, you may feel incredibly condemned when you do that. You may feel very guilty. But then, do you let the word of God confront that guilt and contradict even your guilt to give you comfort, to give you the thrill, the restoration, the peace that comes with the gospel? On one hand, the gospel has to contradict your life choices, your lifestyle. But on the other hand, it's got to contradict your feeling of lowness, your guilt, your brokenness. That's how you heal. If you break God's word, it's going to ruin you. If, and it's going to break you. Or you can let the word of God break you, humble you, and that will bring you new birth new life. Now, this text shows us that you could be at the highest level. You could be at the highest place that you've ever been spiritually, at least in your mind. You could be at the highest place where you were externally in your service, in your spiritual disciplines, in prayer, and yet be very, very distant from God. It's very possible to get that way. That's what this text is telling us. God has made a way then to do surgery, to lift lift us out of our jealousy. How does he do that? Think about Jesus. God said to Jesus, either you will get what you deserve or they can get what you deserve. Either you will get what you deserve and they get what they deserve or you will get what they deserve and they will get what you deserve. And Jesus said, I'll take that option. That's what I'll take. I want them to have what I deserve, and I will take what they deserve. He said, deal. I'll take hell. I'll catch hell. I'll do it. And so on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, I've been forsaken. I'm getting the wrath of God. I'm getting everything that the people that I love deserved. And Isaiah chapter 53 says, and he was glad, and he was satisfied. Look at the love of God. Look at the sacrifice of God. He's at Gethsemane, and Jesus is sweating, and he's trembling, and he's troubled. To the point of death, he is torn apart. And then on the cross, not only was he stripped of his robes, and it wasn't out of confliction, it was stripped from him on the cross, he's being torn apart on the cross. Why? Because what he wanted most, the thing that he wanted most would be taken away from him. The love of the Father. He says, I'm forsaken. I'm torn apart. And he doesn't say, no, I'm going to fight against it. No, I will block it. He says, your will be done. Not my will. Your will be done. He said, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know what he's saying? Father, give them credit, not me. Give them the credit that I deserved, but not me. That's what he's saying. And with that, Jesus, death became his owner. He became a slave. He became a slave to death. Think about Jesus. Jesus got jailed. Jesus got dethroned. Jesus lost his kingship. Saul the king, he throws a spear. On the cross, Jesus got the spear. Jesus got the spear. When you're addicted to jealousy, you spin out of control. How do you get out of it? Look at Jesus. 
He sacrificed the world to give it up for you. So you can have his world. You can have his peace. You can have his favor. You can have the love of the Father because he lost the love of the Father. You can have the acceptance of God because he lost the acceptance of God. You can have the peace of Christ because on the cross he was at unrest. Take Jesus in. The more you take Jesus in, he is all-sufficient. When you see Christ, you know. When you look at the cross, look at the empty tomb, you know you can have what Jesus deserved. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you align your life around that truth, to the degree that you trust that you are utterly loved by God, accepted by God, held in favor by God, that will heal you. If you don't, that's in the word. If you don't, then the word of God will break you. Which one do you trust? Let's pray.